Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. Yeah, I'm Jason. Jason, I thought we had a really nice uh, podcast interview today. Yeah, Preston, I agree. I thought we had a great interview. We talked with Greg Souter, and that's a name that's familiar to most farmers as the founder of Precision Planning. He basically started this company uh, out of his farm, and it grew into a very large company that's changed hands a couple of times throughout the years. And he's currently continuing to innovate with his new company, 360 Yield Center. Yeah, I think he had an awesome story. He's obviously very entrepreneurial. And I guess my key takeaway is that he just, I think he said during the interview, when someone says no, you're probably on the right track. Uh, So I think this is a very motivational podcast interview for maybe those young farmers who are thinking about maybe doing their own thing or starting their own company as well. Absolutely. So let's let Greg tell his story in his own words. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. To kick things off here, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background? Well, Preston and Jason, what a pleasure it is to be with you today. And as I look back over the last 25 years, it just makes me smile. I'm a, I'm a farmer at heart. And Cindy and I, here we had some uh, three little kids and we were trying to make a go in raising hogs and farming and always struggling a little bit on the farming side. We had just switched to 20 inch corn in 1993. Of course, at that time, I had to make all my own equipment, build my own planter and uh, scratch. There really wasn't any industry that had 20 inch corn at that time and really was struggling, wanted to get more ear count. So I was trying to go in the 20s so we could get up in that 34 to 36,000. And in 93, that was stretching hybrids. but knew that if we spread them out and get sunlight in that, we can maybe get a little more ear count and a little bit larger ear. Really excited about it, but failed miserably the first year as a finger planter. As we slowed down that finger meter RPM wise, it just started to skip. And I knew it. And I spent a lot of time on the end rows trying to doctor meters and trying to figure out how I could get a better drop. And that really started me on that winter of 93. I just started to dive in, bought a test stand from SI Distributing, which they sold only to John Deere dealers to sell parts. And I was the first farmer to ever ask one. They couldn't figure out why in the world I wanted. I said, well, I want to trick meters. <laughs> I said, guys, I want to trick meters to simulate perfectly. Well, they laughed and said, that's just not possible. And that, you know, that winter of 93 started it. And uh, we started doctoring finger meters and working on vac meters. And it was a start of precision planting. And there was just Cindy and I and, and one farm employee. And we took a little meeting in the local area. And the next thing I know, I had 600 rows of meters laying on the shop floor. And I, we looked at each other and we said, oh boy, what are we going to do here? And, and it started a, on the trail of saying, and I knew at the time, you know, the planter industry at that time said 90% accuracy was about what you could expect. But you and I, no, and you guys in your industry and I mine, you know, we're shooting for 100%. Well, realize we might not make it. And so at that same time, Pioneer and some of the other seed industry people started walking in the door and saw what we were doing. And they said, hey, would you train seedsmen that sell genetics how to adjust planters? And it was a start. And it was tremendous. And it was fun for Cindy and I. And I mean, it, uh, it was a dream. And the hog thing wasn't working out all that great for us. So we ventured off into this. And at the same time, there was an inventor in Kentucky, Eugene Keaton, probably one of the best inventors I've ever known. So he invented the finger pickup and also the Kenzie brush meter. 
he has heard about us and he happened to just come up from Kentucky to the farm and he brought the Keaton seed firmer at that time. So all of a sudden we had a business, we were doing test stands and tricking meters and, and figuring out how to set back meters that were just out at that time and, and giving them calibration, you know, what seed size they had and back and selling seed firmers all at the same time. And it started precision planning and it was uh, quite a ride and it wasn't long. And I realized that, buying parts from the OEMs was not a very good path. They were concerned. Um, we were doing a considerable amount of business and we actually run deer out of planter parts. We ran them out of backing plates and, and belts. Wow. And that, that caused quite a stir. All of a sudden a VP of deer showed up at my farm. And <laughs> he was saying, who are you and what are you doing? And we just <laughs> laughed <laughs> And we said, well, we need parts. And he said, well, we're just not going to be able to sell you parts. And so I really, I saw the hand right in the wall. So started bringing in some young engineers that were dynamite. And, uh, you know, in the area we live, we're not that far from Moline and we're only 20 miles from Caterpillar. And I always figured in business, if you hire the best, even maybe if you can't afford them, <laughs> it was a real concern for Cindy and I, but we, we hired three young men two from Caterpillar and one from Deer. And it started us on the path of taking planters to another whole space. And I don't know if we could say, Preston and Jason, we ever got to 100% accuracy, but we got really close. You know, I go to farm shows and over the years, we developed more and more V-set and, you know, we got into monitoring and, and my son, Tim, and we need to give credit to a lot of people here because it isn't Greg. I got a lot of strange ideas, but there's a lot of people behind us that made really positive things happen. And I think once we got fine tuning the technology of singulation, and then we started thinking about how do we bring data into the cab? And the iPad at that time was just brand new, but it seemed like a really good path in. And I'll never forget the day when an engineer brought out my planter and we've always farmed through this whole up to the day. Farming is our first love. And, and I think it's what drives us. And we're always looking for the next step and you know, how do we improve? And an engineer brought out a hard suitcase with a battery in it. And he set it up in my back planter in between the CCS tanks and plugged it in into that 41 pin connection there brought his laptop up in the cab with me and he was sitting beside me in the buddy seat and I'm planning, I'm looking over his laptop and he says, look at that. And on his spreadsheet, he had figured out a formulation. All of a sudden I could see for the first time in my life, every seed coming by on the rows and I could see skips and doubles. Wow. And I looked at him and I said, do you understand what you just showed me? I said, for the first time, we're not guessing and we don't wait for corn to come up and say, ooh, oh yeah, great, or not so good. And that started us down that whole path of 2020 and, and field view and all the things that we still use today. And I think it was that evolution of saying that knowledge drives correct decisions real time. And I think that's what started us and really made precision planning what it became. And I always had a goal, I had two goals. With precision plan. I remember telling Cindy when first started, I said, "Hun, the main thing I want to do is take young farmers and make them my dealer. And my dream was, guys, to have them be able to put into their family operation 50,000 net. That was always my dream. Can they do enough work in the neighborhood, parts and 
planner retrofit, could they earn forty to fifty thousand dollars besides their farming income or livestock income? And that was a bit. I remember the first time I told some young dealers that were in thinking about joining our dealership, they just kind of looked at me like, "Yeah, right." <laughs> and and it's it's so much fun because we saw that transition to where farmers started to say, "Yeah, I want technology." Because at the same time, and I think we're just lucky, the Kelb at that same time designed genetics guys that just hit home runs. So the price had gone up. So all of a sudden, seed was something you need to pay attention to. You weren't just going to slop it. You know, once we got over 200 to $300 a bag for seed corn, the guys were like, hey, I want to do this right. At the same time, yields were just climbing. And so we had one path. We were saying our goal is to make 10 to 15 bushel more for a grower with a fine-tuned planter. And the other path was to say, let's develop these entrepreneur dealerships. Most of them were seedsmen. They were selling, you know, that Monsanto or at that time to Kelb and, you know, Agrigold and all the different genetics. We were making that seedsman kind of the go-to guy in the neighborhood for either, not only just agronomy, but for plantership. What, what do we need to do to get better? And so it was a lot of fun. And those two things just kind of grew together and it really took off. And it, uh, it was amazing. Um, we just kept, you know, designing things and we would always figure out the next step. I knew, for example, that soil environment around the seed, how you and I created that soil impact had a huge effect on stands and yield. And so that's where Delta Force come from. And I had hired a young guy and I told him what I wanted to do. And for two years we worked on, it. he rode my planner and I didn't know how that was going to go. So here's a guy that I just hired riding with me the whole spring in a buddy seat and get to know each other pretty good. <laughs> still, still love him today. Mike was one of a million. And, but he had software and we were setting the planner. So when I would stop in the end rows and you'd look back, it looked like somebody playing a keyboard of a piano. The rows looked like a border collie ready to go after a steer. You know, they're just jumping. And I'd say, no, no, Mike, a little too active. Tame it down a little bit. And so as we were going through the field, we were experimenting. What is the perfect downforce? My, my idea was after we put the seed an inch and three quarters, zero. I don't want any more pounds than what it actually takes to position the seed to the perfect depth. After that, anything on top is compaction. And so that's what we are working on. And it took us two years. And that third year, I felt like we were making stride. We started to experiment with it out. And that's what become Delta Force. And to this day yet, growers are, are just, it's a riot. Uh, listen to growers come up to me and say, you know, man, that is, that really works. And it, it makes you realize all the hard efforts that all of our team put in, how exciting it was. And it's really just about making you guys, you guys are in the genetics. I mean, it makes it hard work that you're doing can we make that corn that much better? So I think that's, that's where it really started. So in 93, 94, it started. And then by about 2008, it was cranking pretty hard. I mean, I got up, oh, we probably had 850 dealerships worldwide, a lot in the States, of course. And it was just either farmers or professional seedsmen or agronomists or ag Ag chem stores just saying, you know, to their farmers that they work with, hey, we'll help you take the next steps to more yield. And that, that's what was so much fun. 
it's really interesting to hear you talk about that, Greg, because I, I wonder, we all kind of know that farmers are an inventive bunch uh, anyway, always finding a, a new way to do things. But a lot of times that's just maybe on their own farm and it doesn't go any farther than that. But to think about how far you took this company, you'd be hard pressed to find a farmer who doesn't know about precision planning. But for the consumers that are listening, Greg, can you give them an idea of how widespread the adoption of these products has been? A lot of guys would just take a certain piece. They would just take a certain meter or um, they would take, you know, maybe just the downforce side, but it's, it's a pretty high percentage because what we were willing to do is we just worked hard on retrofitting into any brand. So whether it was Case, Kinsey, so your biggest one is deer, no question, hands down, what, 60% of the market is deer planters or more probably today. And so any, any planner that we could, we were retrofitting this technology to whether it was singulation or downforce or the 2020 where we were recording in the cab on the iPad, watching live instant data, whether that was downforce or seating or spacing or, you know, all those things. Um, it, it just was a, and I think it comes when you have success as an entrepreneur and individual businessman, you kind of learn, I always call it, once you learn how to bake cookies, you can rebake that same recipe again. I think that's what inventing was like for us. Once we figured out the path of how to invent, and obviously we'd always do IP and then patents because you have to, you have to protect, you know, all this hard effort from your young team members. And, um, but once we learned how to run something down that path of inventing and you fail a thousand times and Tim and I would always tell him, Tim made a great, one time made a great PowerPoint of 15 things it takes to invent. And, and one of it was you got to break stuff and fail a thousand times before you get it right. And it's so true. And once we kind of figured out how to run something down that track, and we're still doing it today, you know, even after we moved on from precision planning and, you know, I'll never forget the day Monsanto called and they said, they want to come and see us. And I told Cindy, I wonder what this is about. You know, I don't have time. You know how it is. You're just busy. And it was in the spring of the year and I was getting planners ready to go. And, and they come in, you know, and, and as a farm family, I mean, here we have by that time, you know, we got seven kids. And so we're a full-fledged farm family, just struggling like everybody else and working hard. And I don't know, I probably had 120 full-time employees at this time and probably another almost 100 part-time farmers that would come in. All they had to do is bring their lunch bucket in the wintertime and we'd put them to work, whether it was in shipping or packaging or assembly or setting meters. And it was uh, tremendous value to Cindy and I that we could bring in friends for either from church or wherever in a community and have them work for us just felt so good. And then to have them walk in and say, we would really like to buy you. It was like, absolutely not. That was not even a option. And I remember coming home that night and Cindy said to me, she was out, we have a dairy herd likewise. So she was in the barn, we dairy. And so she laughs at me, she says, well, let me guess, they wanted to buy you. She's thinking she was funny, you know. And I looked at her and said, yeah, they did. <laughs> wow. And she said, you serious? She said, we're not selling. And I said, no, we're not. I said, it's our family. I mean, it's us. You just, you, I don't know how you separate. You know, people say, well, you shouldn't bring your work home. Well, when you're a farm family, and my kids at night are shipping and snapping finger sets together. 
I mean, they were wizards. I mean, a little eight-year-old guy could snap those 12 finger sets, 12 fingers hooked to springs and snap them into the back of that finger set. I mean, they would do hundreds. Of course, we'd pay them, you know, a couple just to write them out for a dad to get his kids to work. <laughs> and I mean, they were leaning in. I mean, we'd go out every night in the shop and we'd play basketball for a bit and the little kids would ride their trikes around and the rest of us, we were behind. I mean, we couldn't build enough meters, you know, shipping them all over the place. And so it was just a family thing. So it took us about a year and a half to decide that we would sell. And we really felt like it was best because I liked what Monsanto said they were going to do. And I believe passionately in it. And it maybe didn't work out quite like we hoped. But I always knew that plant breeders knew a lot about genetics. And what they sold me on, they said, Greg, with your technology and planter equipment, we should be able to pick the right hybrid for the right soil type to be matched perfectly at the right population. And I knew in my heart, if we could do that, there was another 15 to 20 bushel, just gravy. And uh, over time, as we worked on it, I said, I would consider selling. And uh, I won't go back and say if it was the right thing to do or not. I, how, do you, how do you do that, guys? I mean, look at the decisions you guys made. You've changed companies, I'm sure. Employment, you could always look back and say, well, did I do the right thing by coming to a different company? You know, uh, you just never know. The good Lord works it out like it does for the right reasons. And so all of a sudden, you know, as you go through that whole transition, I had an opportunity to start over. Well, I knew I was going to do it in ag, but at the same time, you have a non-compete. So for five years, I couldn't touch planters. For, for a guy that just lived and breathed planters from 93 to 2012, you know, you're talking 19 years. That's all I did was think about the next step in corn planters. You know, we had built a, you know, a, we had built speed tube by then. We were running planters. In Texas, I was running planters. I remember taking the Monsanto execs down. They drove that planter for 15 mile an hour. We showed them perfect seating, spacing wow. at 15 wow. mile an hour. And they were like, this is insane. <laughs> and we need this. <laughs> and so we did. And, and it, it really, it probably was the right thing because it gave 120 local employees a really good base. And so but as I started over, I kept thinking, well, what am I going to do? And I knew nitrogen. And at that phase, our farm, we had too many inputs. And so Tim and I started to actively. And so over the next five years, we lowered our farm inputs by 44%. We just started cutting. And one of the major things after seed is, is fertilization, is nitrogen. It's your second biggest cost. And I said, guys, we got to do a better job of knowing how much when and where to put it. And so we started with a wide drop. And so 360 was really in their early days was all about positioning nitrogen and understanding the growth after you have your corn planted. But we had hit 99.9% accuracy. And I told our guys, we could maybe hit 100% on planters, but the dollars it would take to invent that technology and farmers to buy it, I see no yield. If you're telling me your planters running 99.8 at eight and a half to nine mile an hour, and you come out with a new invention that said it could plant 100%, I don't see how that would pay. And so we kind of felt like it's time to move on. And that and 360 then was doing a lot of work in, on that side of it, saying, and I could play in tillage, for example, and, and corn heads on managing residue. And so that was a lot of fun. 
Greg, through the years, you came up with a lot of inventions that really changed the way farmers did things and allowed them to improve how they planted. You focused on nutrition and fertility. You looked at tillage. You looked at a lot of different things. And recently, you really shifted your focus to another area, and that is probably the biggest limiting factor when it comes to growing crops. Farmers can do everything right. If they don't get the right rainfall at the right time, it can have a huge negative impact on the crop. Two years ago, I told Tim, I said, we're missing it. I said, we're stuck. And we were hitting guys on our farm. We have some really fortunate. We have some good soils. And we could get 275. We had fields that were making in the 270s in the good years. You know all about 18 and 19. You know, those were great years. And uh, 15 wasn't so good. But, you know, there were some good years and there were yields. And the DeKalb genetics was just going through the roof. But it seemed like we'd hit this plateau where the 300 wasn't happening. Now, maybe we, we were getting checks at 300 and doing research. Oh, man, I was doing 12-inch corn and 20-inch corn. And, you know, I was planting 53,000 in 12-inch corn and doing all kinds of stuff. And at the same time, we started drip tape, watering under the ground. And, and we were doing a lot of irrigation because we raised a lot of seed. We raise a lot of seed from Monsanto and, uh, well, should say bear now. And, and so we understood the water thing. But I kept telling Tim, we're missing a 50 bushel step. And what it really come down to was understanding what nature could do to us. And I don't think there's a farmer or anyone that's listening, even if they're from, you know, suburban area. They know what a garden looks like if you go through three weeks of super dry weather or, or 95 plus temperatures. And I could see even in the best laid plans in our system approach and everything's a system in our farming process, everything's well-planned. Exact genetics that we want on that soil, the right population, everything's variable rate, you know, everything's BRT, you know, we even do limestone BRT, you know, we may match everything by yield zones and but I just felt like we just needed a step. And so we started working on what would it be? Well, water, I think everybody would agree that a drink of water is always something that takes stress off. But I kept telling Tim, not everybody is going to irrigate because not everybody can get a thousand gallon an acre or a thousand gallon a minute. You know, it's just some of us have aquifers underneath and some do not. And we were playing around of drip. I had put in all of our own drip. I figured out how to do it. We owned a bunch of drip bars and my farm team are just great guys. And we had about oh, 1,100 acres of drip irrigation. And after we put that initial 1,100 acres in, we've never put any in since. And that should probably tell you something. <laughs> Not that it doesn't work, but the cost was higher than I ever thought it would be. And just the maintenance. And it just makes me nervous having something that costly underground. It could get up to as high as $2,200, $2,400 an acre. Wow. And we were, we were experimenting all kinds of depths. You know, California, every Netafim and all the people from India and every, all over the world, Israel came. And they were saying, Greg, you got to put it at six inches, six to eight inches in depth. I said, you can't farm at six, eight. We're doing seed corn. We got to do tillage. I said, we got it. So we went, tried some at 12 inches, and we put most of it 18 to 20 inches deep. And they said, it'll never work. But it does it will come up. It comes up twice as fast as it goes down. Gravity takes it. So water will come up 12 inches below the tape. It might go four to six. 
Whoa. at the most. So we knew how water draws capillary action, how it would come up. And so if in 45 minutes to start your drip field, you would start to see these little damp circles on top, pretty soon they would spread. So there's an emitter in the line every 24 inches. And so we saw some really good yields coming from that. I didn't like the cost. I didn't like putting it in, it was an ugly baby. I sure didn't like fixing leaks in the spring. Um, and in 80 acres, you know, you might have 20 leaks and you're up to your armpit, you know, reaching down to muddy, soapy, dirty water, trying to figure out where the leak is and digging. And so I kept telling Tim, we got some problems. We got too much cost in what the industry has, way too much water demand. I said, we need to design something where everybody in the Corn Belt can play. And so we started two years ago, actually three, on 360 rain, a concept that said, we know what nitrogen does next to the base of the plant. Tremendous response, putting it right over the root system, letting that plant get an easy early uptake of N and sulfur and micronutrients and everything that we were doing with our Y drops. I kept telling Tim, why couldn't we do water that way? So instead of needing 750, 800, 1200 gallon a minute, I said, what if we banned it water? And so we started thinking about an autonomous machine because when you think about autonomous, uh, I already told you I love the farm. I mean, I'm not looking for deer to design me a tractor that I sit in the house and do through, you know, through a computer screen. I got five tractors running. That's not fun for me. Um, I love being in the field. But at the same time, I told Tim, nobody's going to drive. We know what it takes to drive a sprayer. You know, when you're out doing fungicide and tall corn, it's not fun. I mean, it's hard to see where your rows are. And we got auto steer, obviously, but it, it was just tough. And so I told Tim, first thing we got to do is gotta, it's got to think for itself. So I said, Tim, it's going to have to be autonomous. And so Tim, my oldest son, he drives all of our R&D and actually helps drive the company. And he said, we can do this. And so we started thinking about what would it be and how are we going to do it? And we realized we were going to have this line that we were going to have to work with a heavy reel. In other words, there's a water hose that's got to go somewhere. You could never haul enough water to a field of a sprayer. You said, well, you know, if a sprayer, let's put on a half inch. Oh, my. 13,000 gallons of the acre times 100 acres. That's 1.3 million gallon. That's, that's 350 semi-loads for one field to do one rain. That's, that's kind of funny, Greg. I, I, I was talking to a farmer this or someone this spring that was putting on some water with the, with the uh, planter. And I, and I figured out what, you know, how many inches that was. <laughs> you're, you're not making much of an impact. <laughs> no, you're barely putting one drop of water on a seed. You know, we just used to laugh. You can't haul enough. So we said, okay, it's going to have a lifeline, I call it. And we knew we could do a three inch line to get enough distance. So we based everything on 160 acres or less. So we said this one machine and our vision was, we said, we're going to design technology that's going to live in the field. The minute the planter leaves, I don't ever see us coming in again. That's my goal. That machine should handle that crop through whatever scenario you're getting. So if you're telling me you plant it, and 15 hours later, you got a, out of nowhere, a downpour and you crushed that soil. I immediately would soften that soil by running rain. And we just put a zone of water right over the road. Obviously, we know where it's at. It's RTK. We're following the exact imprint of the planter. So the planter passed, 
we put a receiver on RTK and we create paths. So wherever the planner goes, our technology is going to go exactly verbatim. So if you lean to the left, we're going to lean to the left. You lean to the right, we're going to lean to the right. And so it starts with whatever we need to get the perfect plant count, perfect ear count. Ears are what make grain. Anytime you and I can add an ear, it's seven bushel an acre. And now we're in a, what, 450 corn market or close for next year. Pretty exciting stuff if you and I start to add seven to 10 bushel. But I kept saying to Tim, we got to add 50. It's one big giant step at one time. So we knew we needed water. We need to understand fertility. We need to understand managing disease and, and insects. And so this technology that we're working on, our goal is, and it's not there yet, right now it's watering and it's doing nitrogen and sulfur and it can do boron and all those things. But there's a long runway ahead of us of other inventions that we want to tag team with it. And I mean, I would, my goal would be Preston, if I was your customer or Jason, you could pull up an iPhone image of where it's at at that moment in the field and you could see if there's any gray leaf or any rust. But we got Japanese beetle clipping silk because we got to realize this machine at 60 feet or 24 rows is only moving eight inches a second. So that's less than a half mile an hour, about 0.4 at the most. 0.4, less than a half mile an hour, it's going through the field. Now it's taking 24 rows and it's watering. And so it goes all the way to the end of the field on that planter pass. And when it gets all the way through the end rows and to the ditch bank, it stops and it comes backing up. So on the way out, it's laying out hose perfectly at the speed. The reel with the software is running exactly the forward speed. So we're never pulling hose or dragging or picking up or, or stretching. It's always, that's where the challenge is. It's always picking up hose. So on the way back, it's winding it up. And when it gets to the center of the field where the well is, we got what we call a 50-yard line. It's going to turn its hind end following the hose towards the well. It'll stop once it comes straight with the well again. Now it's going to go the opposite direction and turn south. It was going north. Now it's going to go south. And it'll do that half of the field. So our thought process, what we've been testing is we put on 15 hundredths of an inch on the way out with nitrogen and sulfur. We always put nitrogen and sulfur together. When we come the way back, we do water only. And we were using about oh, 10 to 16 units of N per pass. And we make a pass every week. And so we're doing a 12 to 15 inch band of water right around the root balls. And so where the wheels are is dry. So we're not making tracks. It's dry in the center of that 30 inch row. And so we go out and we come back. And as we've started to introduce this, I guess the, the neatest thing I've seen is the livestock guys have responded and they're saying, wait a minute, you mean to tell me now, instead of trying to do all of our manure after harvest, and most states now have where you can't spread on frozen ground or snow. So you take Minnesota, basically their laws are now, you can't spread any manure below, you know, above 50 degrees and and or before October 15th. Well, by November 7th to the 12th in Minnesota, you're froze up. Well, now you can't put it on. So you only got three weeks and these large dairies are like, well, Greg, 
this is the answer. We can start to put our dairy manure on as nitrogen beside the plants. So it's been a lot of fun as we, um, as we think about how we manage for the ultimate yield. So the goal was 50 bushel. And we've been so blessed the last two years, we're averaging right about 51 bushel in our two, two years of trials of additional versus just mother nature next to us. Wow. So it's been really interesting to watch the impact of what once a week, a third of an inch of water can do. Now, remember, we say three tenths. That's 15 inches. We say three tenths an acre we put on what it really is with the plant seeds is six tenths. You got to double it because you're only putting on half of the area. So a machine has the ability to put on anywhere from six tenths to an inch of water a week. And we only need 200 gallon of a well. So much less requirement. So I, our goal is to go into Indiana and Ohio and those areas where a lot of times pivots don't work because they just can't get that, that kind of volume. So our dream is we're going to open up in the Corn Belt a variability where we can come in and say we can fix that two to three weeks of stress period in the summertime where we, well, we know it's as much, this year is 65 bushel for us in our tests is what we averaged over eight trials. We, we were able to average 65 bushel and we had three weeks in August here in Tremont. Uh, I think we had six days over 93 and we didn't have any rain for, th for three, three weeks. And that 65 bushel, now it wasn't that it was terrible corn where mother nature was still over 200, but in the farm we were on, it made 65 bushel more. So those genetics responded to less stress and the right amount of water and nitrogen. It was just exciting. Now the nitrogen in those trials are exactly the same. Both of those strips had 200. The one we put some on the planter and we did wide drop it and that brought it up to 200. And the other one, we did some with the planter and then we were putting on every time. So for 12 times, we put on, you know, 10 to uh, about 10 to 11 units of nitrogen. So it's interesting to watch how water helps bring nutrients into the plant. So we got a lot more water around that root system. That root system seems to respond. So and it's fun. We, of course, had a company call us to say, we heard through the grapevine. Of course, you hoped it was silent, but there's always somebody knows somebody said, hey, we got experimental fungicide that's systemic. Would you take enough just to try around with this technology that you're working on to see? And guys, it was amazing. So we put on this that's coming out soon, uh, a product that's systemic. And I watched the plant health. So we put it on about shirt pocket high. So let's just say it was V9, V10 at the most. And we put on that systemic fungicide and the plant health was through the roof. We were cutting plants open with our agronomists. We were looking at the root system. And I was saying, guys, this, this is, so when we think about insecticides or, or fungicides or any of the type of products that we work with to take yields high, I think we got a good platform now that we can put that in the field and maybe take it to a new spot. So, so lots of things that we're thinking about, you know, seeding cover crops, handling manure. Um, I, if you run a talk really crazy futuristic, why wouldn't we plant? Tell me what you want, uh, Jason, for a plant count. Let's just say you tell me, Greg, 
the genetics I got, the sweetheart one, I need 38,000 plants. Well, with rain, we know that we can plant that comfortably at 30 inch corn because we're not gonna stress it with drought. We're gonna water it, we're gonna feed it. But if I was gonna be saying the 38 perfect plants, I would like to see us plant at 40, 2000 more than what we want. Now with that technology we got, we've got cameras on this machine. I see the future where we're gonna index every corn plant. And you say, oh, come on, your cloud space doesn't have enough capability. Oh yeah, we do. I mean, look what Google and all those have been able to do. So now we're looking at every corn plant from day one as we watch them grow. So every week we're going down that same row. We know exactly where we're at. So plant 3,215 we look at every week. And we know that in that thousands of an acre where he's at, he's a collar behind. He's just not great. We just don't like him very much. By about V6, the V8, I'm going to take him out. Mechanically, I believe we have some things that we've talked about. So why wouldn't we overplant by 2,000? And every thousandth of an acre, every 17 feet, five inches, we judge that class of, of corn plants. And we say, you know what? Out of this thousandth of an acre, plant number five and plant number 17 are dogs. Let's look at him again next week and see if he's doing any better. And out of that 38 or 40,000 or 40, 38 or 40 plants, we're going to pick the worst two and we're going to take them out mechanically. Just nylight them. We can either do it with a flamer, we can do a mechanical weeder. We can take him out. Now, every plant that's left as a plant breeding, guys, well, you guys, you should say, wait a minute, you mean the new genetics of tomorrow, everyone's going to have perfect sunlight and perfect moisture and perfect nitrogen. All of a sudden, we're getting excited thinking about how many kernels we can put on an ear. And so I don't know what the future looks like for sure. And you say, well, that sounds kind of crazy. But I know that for farm families to be successful, we've got to keep moving ahead. Uh, we, we can't sit still. I think something like we're talking here with 360 rain takes the weather out of it. It gives you comfort to plant over 33,000. Maybe you'll now move into 36 or 38,000 and say, you know what? I don't have to worry about in August. I'm going to run out of water. And so those are the things that we're looking at, guys, saying what, you know, when it comes to the future in ag, we've got to keep farm families profitable. Um, it's just a must. And I think you guys are doing your part. You're giving us genetics, proven it over the last five years, phenomenal. They can handle stress. They can do all kinds of things. Amazing. Um, so I think then it comes down to us as growers saying, let's put in place a system that just takes it, you know, yield to another whole place. I think this concept is just fascinating because as we all know, the crop is really limited by water almost every year. I mean, you can do perfect nutrition, perfect everything the crop needs, keep the weeds controlled, put on a fungicide. But if you don't get the rain, the crop has trouble developing the roots. It has trouble taking up those nutrients. And so this is really interesting, I think, to see how this evolves. Well, you know, with our experience of watering, so we've run a lot of pivots and we have drip. I was always concerned when we water the whole plant in the middle of the day, and sometimes we had to. We'd like to run at night, but we know what happens to ET. If you guys jumped into a 50-degree shower, I'll guarantee you you're going to shiver. Say 55. Say it's groundwater, it's 55 or 53, and it's no different than a corn plant. And it's so important 
that a corn plant utilizes sunlight all day long. We know what happens at night. The night, that energy goes the other way. So all those cells, now it goes the other way. And that plant starts to feed that ear that's starting to develop those early kernels. And so I always would tell our guys, I'm not sure we want to be irrigating in the middle of the day. And that's why I'm so excited that we can put it at the base of the plant. Because I said, we're not going to stop those great big sunlight factories, those big leaves that are hanging out. I said, if we cool them down, if you rinse them down with a four-tenths of a rain in the middle of the day of a pivot, that plant shuts down. I mean, you're no longer pulling water and nutrients out of the soil for, until it gets back to a certain temperature and starts to respirate again, you know, it starts to sweat and go through the process. And so it's all those little things that we were thinking about. Are we perfect? Oh, absolutely not. Will there be mistakes? Well, sure. Um, I've invented enough things over the years. I just know how bad we can stumble sometimes, but exciting as we see where we're at within this first two years. So we're running in Florida right now in a large dairy down there. We're doing silage corn. In fact, we're chopping that silage. So we're getting ready to replant March 3rd. We'll replant that silage and uh, we'll get two, two silage crops over the, what we call the winter season. And so we got rain running down there and it gives us a great place to, so we're running around around the year. That's always what we were looking for. How do we run? You know, I always tell our guys, we need a farm in the Southern hemisphere. Well, we were lucky we found this down in Southern Florida. We found a dairy that would let us come and, and they're excited. You know, their number one problem there is typical livestock guys. You know, they say our number one problem is not watering corn. We believe you. Our number one problem is manure management. And so they have a large dairy, 8,000 cows. And they're saying, rain's going to fix all of my problems. And I smile and I'd say, Jerry, <laughs> we can fix your problems of manure, but what we're really going to do is raise you some really good corn for the first time in your life. We're going to get you some really good silage here. So we're having a lot of fun working with them. You know, um, organic has just been interesting. The organic farmers I worked with this summer, we brought uh, 31 farmers in just to say, are we nuts? No, take a look at this. Had, a, had them in a field with this following rain as it went through corn and it lit them up. They said, this is the thing that we are probably missing the most in the organic crops. So I don't know. I'm excited about the capability of it. Um, we're really looking forward to seeing what, what we can do, but uh, Got a question it, it's going to be fun. Absolutely. Uh, curious about the economics. So you mentioned drip irrigation and the challenges yeah. from a price perspective. Do you have any forecasts as far as the economics behind a program like this? Well, I think, you know, our target is after you do a well, so you put in the well, the electric, our hope is you can be in that for 160, you'd be right at a thousand dollars an acre. And so where our drip was running over 2000, you know, we're hoping that we can be half of that or comparable to pivots. Now, the beautiful thing of this over pivots, pivots, and the technology has been there for a long time. It's been there 80 years. Um, in 1940s when the first pivots hit, but they run in a circle and the field has to be, you know, perfectly shaped or your windshield wipe, but you always have corners that aren't done. And, you know, in our seed industry, a corner is something that gets great, a lot of heartburn. They make us put isolation bean acres out there in the corners. If water's not hitting it, they don't want in a seed field irrigated and natural, even though it could be really good production ground. And so I watch every 160, we got 32 acres sitting out. And I'm like, so when we started with rain, I said, it's got to do odd shaped fields. 
no matter what the shape is, we got to be able to run in it. And it's got to do 100% of the field. And so that's been some of the kind of the things, you know, you always write on a whiteboard 10 things that it must do. And that's in that. So if you tell me you got a field of a railroad track running through it at an angle where a pivot couldn't run, you know, we can, we can stop every 60 feet and we get to the end and we'll back, back up and come up to it again. And so those are all things that uh, I think is going to really help us. We're seeing a lot of interest that way. Guys call and say, Hey, I have a hundred acre field and it's got six, seven corners in odd shape. And so those are things that we should be able to do. So, you know, we're, we're trying to see where we'll be next year. We'll be, um, this coming year, we'll have about six machines running. And then in 22, I want to put 20 machines out in a beta. And then our hope is in 23, as things progress and software gets proven out, all the safety features and everything that we want, uh, we're hoping to be sales in 23. So we're right about that $1,000 an acre for a six, 160. And so depending upon the well size that you need, um, you know, we'll be you know, probably right around about 100000 for the machine itself. So if you're saying, well, we're only going to do an 80-acre field, well, it's going to be a little more pricey. So those are things that we're working on and looking at. If you can give a 50-bushel increase, um, you know, you're looking at a pretty fast payoff for, for a product like this. Well, I started out with the goal. You know, you always, as a leader of a company, you always got to have a goal for the engineers to shoot at. I told them five years. I said, if we can go into a bank anywhere in rural farm country, and tell them, look, we have technology that in five years can pay for it. I mean, a tiling system, we do a lot of pattern tiling. That's about an eight to nine year payback to put a tile in. And I think we're going to be in that five to six way it looks right now, payback. And I think that gives a, a grower a lot of comfort going into his finance team, sitting down with them, showing what they can do. The amazing thing to me was on the bean side. So on the field we had, we had beans and corn. And we were running rain. So as it started in, we had a, a long strip of beans and it went right into about 2,000 feet of corn each pass. And so I thought, I kept telling Tim, I said, man, these beans look really good. We were watering every week. I said, uh, it amazes me. I said, Tim, I think you're going to be quite a bit here. And he's just always smiling. Oh, dad, we'll just wait and take it to yield. And so we had all these strips you know, all these replicated trials. And when we cut them out, the beans were over 14 bushel advantage. And I said to Tim, I said, this fixes a lot of problems for dad in our farming world. <laughs> I said, because I think the machines can definitely be mobile. So let's say you're a corn farmer, guys, and you're doing corn one year and beans the next, corn, bean, corn, bean. And you have another field that's a quarter mile down the road. Definitely these machines can be towed. And you can probably run an underground pipe. We do a lot of underground piping. Uh, from a well, irrigation well. A lot of times we'll put the well at the road site because it helps us with the electrical power requirement, you know, on our irrigators, on our pivots. And then we'll pump water to the center tripod. And you can do the same thing here. You know, you'll have a hydrant out in the center of the field that this hose hooks to. But when you think of that hose, I mean, why can't we dump cover crop seeding? You think of the carbon credits that are all being talked about now. We've got companies calling us talking about carbon credits and where this is going to go, it's really interesting to me. I mean, if any time as a farmer, we can increase soil health and get paid for it, I'm in. And so this fall, we'll be putting seeds in the water stream. And when it comes down the drop, we'll put a flat fan piece of 
you know, on the bottom, instead of going right next to the root, we'll just spread it out and then we'll water it in coming back. So on the way out, it'll be seeding with water. On the way back, just water only. My goal would be when I think of the carbon credits, guys, most of that's based off of plant or material height. We talk about sequestering, you know, carbon out of, this, out of the air. How much height did you raise? Well, if I could get a grower to have four inches of rye by the time you harvest corn, we're a long ways down the road for the northern states. And so those are things we're looking at and hoping to test this fall. So this year, besides watering, we're going to do manure and cover crops. So the seeding is the two things that are really on my plate is things I got to get, get done. So you mentioned cover crop. Would that come through the hose also, or yes. is there another method? So okay. we, yeah, we'd be putting it right in the water. Okay. So at the well, we'd have a manifold and we'd be injecting seeding right in the water stream. Now you got to think about how fast that water's moving. It's like a fire hose. So, I mean, the seeding is going to be swirling in there, but we really believe we're going to get a really good stand. So it's things we're working on and uh, it'll be fun to see if we can, we can pull it off. Do you, do you have hope for the future to be able to apply foliar products like fungicides later in the season, or are you Definitely. looking at systemics only, or, and then also what about weed control? Are you able well, to do herbicides also? Yes, that's definitely the plan. When you think about guys, think about, we got water on board. So you've got a constant supply. We don't have to have like a sprayer. We don't have to have a thousand gallon tank there. We got a water hose coming to us. All we need is a stainless active tank of active ingredient. So if that's a fungicide or if that's a herbicide or some type of burn down, you know, my vision is once you buy a rain unit, sprayer would never come in the field. Post, you know, if we need a pre burn down on, and let's say it's March, I don't know, pick imaginary date, March 28th, April 5th, we'll run rain you know, let rain go ahead and put down that herbicide. Or even if the technology we looked at a lot of spot, you know, where we're identifying certain weeds and we're just spot spraying, all those things should be in our wheelhouse at the speed we're going. You know, when you bring intelligence to a machine, now we're saying no reason why on our drops, we can't hang our undercovers, which we already have, which is three nozzles blowing spray up from the bottom of the leaf still have on the boom, which is at 10 foot of height on this machine, we'd have a nozzle coming down the other way. So definitely, DeLauro would have no problem being sprayed on, uh, I love that product by the way, but uh, it, it should have no problem being applied. At that rate, you almost could just pulse it when you think of every plant coming by at the speed we're going. It, uh, it's a big difference between 0.4 mile an hour at 12 to 10 mile an hour on a sprayer. And so I think the coverage should be really good because we got lots and lots of water. And uh, so herbicides, insecticides, definitely uh, fungicides. And then, you know, even in early, if we think of the marketplace wants to bring something systemic out on an insecticide, I don't see any reason why we couldn't water that in. Uh, so I'd like to think that we're opening up hopefully for the industry to look at new technology and say, hey, maybe we need to start inventing new products to follow this type of technology. That's fascinating. So Greg, for my last question, I know we're probably coming up on time here. I wanted to go a little bit off script. After talking to you here today, it seems like the word can't is probably not in your vocabulary. And uh, because of that, I guess I'm curious, 
do you have any advice for like students or maybe young farmers who are entrepreneurial that maybe want to go in a similar path that you've gone throughout your career? Yeah, I think when you come up with concepts, uh, you try them. If, if you're going to listen to the herd, everybody's going to tell you, no, that won't work. I, I, if I had a dollar, guys, for every time somebody told me that won't work, I just always smile. That's usually an indication that we're on the right path. And uh, so, you know, definitely if, if it's a really cool idea, first to invent is in now. So just get it, draw it out, get a notary at the bank to date it for you, put it in the bank deposit box. Now you got a date stamped where you're first to invent and then start tinkering. You know, uh, you can find a lot of companies that will help you and start, start working on concept. There is so much yet that needs to be invented. I heard somebody say one time, you know, the patent office is done. I mean, we don't even need a patent. Everything that's ever going to be invented, it's invented. It's like, what? What are you talking about? Um, so you think of young farmers. And, uh, I think the main thing as a young farmer is be willing to change and think about next steps. You think like a corn plant or a soybean plant or a cotton plant, whatever, where you're at. Um, you got to be willing to think like the crop you're growing and say, what doesn't it like and what does it like? And then figure out in your system, how do you do that? It doesn't mean you maybe have to write a big check. Maybe you just need to find some technology and you retrofit into your system. Um, but there's a lot of invention that needs to be done yet. And uh, I'm excited thinking about the future for a lot of people. Well, Greg, this has been a lot of information you've given us. Your story is interesting. This is an interesting product that you're working on that really has a chance, I think, to really change agriculture in the way that your planter equipment did 20 years ago. And you've been very generous with your time. We appreciate it. How can a listener that's interested in this learn more about your products? Sure. There's two websites. You can go to 360rain.com or you can go to 360yieldcenter.com. And both of those will lead you right into videos. And we do a lot of education, virtual anymore with the change here in 2020. So feel free to dabble in and, and take a look at some of the training and videos and things that we have. And we look forward to working with growers and I can't wait to see uh, next steps as we go forward. Well, Greg, we really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you guys very much. I'm honored that you'd invite us on. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.